This is Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to the Friday morning break with John Gibbs and my continuing quest to understand, after a career in education, what schools are for. My guest this week is the highly distinguished Professor Patricia Broadfoot. A long career in education is a champion of social science and a writer on the subject of assessment and the sociology of assessment. We discuss her recent work, we discuss her research and her long and highly distinguished career. This is Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in at ttradio.org or download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in with Teachers Talk Radio. And as the music dies away, we're back with my guest, Professor Patricia Broadfoot, Professor of Education at Bristol University. As I said in the introduction, Professor Broadfoot is a is a sociologist of education and has written extensively over a long career. In 1979, she wrote Assessments of School and Society. In 1996, Education, Assessment and Society. And recently, Time to Tame the Leviathan of Assessment in Schools. And recently, The Sociology of Assessment, a compendium of her work over her whole career. Patricia was the Vice-Chancellor of Gloucester University, elected Fellow to the Royal Society of Arts in 1992, Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Bristol University, and a founding academician of the UK Academy of Learned Societies of the Social Science. And in 2006, Patricia was made a commander of the British Empire in the New Year's Honours List. The sociology of assessment is a good place to start our conversation. But first of all, of course, welcome to Teachers Talk Radio on this lovely Friday morning, as it will be when it goes out. So Mm. thank you for joining us. Thank you, John, and thank you for inviting me. Well, whether you're listening to this live uh, on the Friday morning when it goes out on Teachers Talk Radio or whether you're picking us up on the podcast, what, I, what I'm doing, as you will know, audiences that have listened to my show, is I'm exploring what schools are for. And I'm particularly looking forward to this conversation because, Patricia, you are a professor, of course, of the sociology of education, or at least you take a sociological view of education. And I was thinking before I started this conversation, or before I prepared for this interview, that we do we tend to think of schools and certainly assessment in schools and exams in schools in terms of the mechanics how effective they are how reliable they are the data we collect and so on and while you've been doing you've following a career of, of of looking at it from a sociological point of view that's not really how we look at it in society in fact many of the questions you ask i think have been quite wildly i wouldn't say ignored but they they don't they aren't the way that we talk about exams generally Is your voice, do you feel sometimes you're a lone voice (laughs) and not being listened to? Or or should we think of exams in schools more sociologically? There's the context within society. Well, um, it's a good question. And uh, it's not surprising that people in the business of education think about assessment as a very practical thing. Because when you're in a teaching role, whether it's in school or indeed higher education like me, you've got an awful lot of assessment to do. And uh, it matters to do it well for the students that you've got and for the institution. So I, as you've 
said, John, I, I'm a sociologist, so I tend to look at life with a sociologist's eyes, and I'm not a psychologist. It's mainly psychologists who, over many, many decades, were responsible for designing assessments and tests. And I came on this more sociological take on assessment very early in my career, as it happened, way back in the 1970s, when I started thinking about um, not what school is for, although we all think about that. But um, And that time, of course, was the time of Ivan Illich and people like him, Paolo Freire, and de-schooling society. So it was a time, actually, of radical challenge to the notion of school as a whole. But for me, I started thinking about, well, where did assessment come from? And I guess my early work was looking at the role it plays in society in um, in two different countries, in England and in France, and not in the classroom so much, but as a sort of way of controlling the education system by the politicians. And this question, what schools are for, you might like to ask equally from for me, what assessment is for? And that was really the um, the light bulb moment for me because I started thinking, well, why do we have it? At a most basic level, of course, you know, teachers need to check up on what students have learned and what they haven't learned and classroom tests and all that kind of thing. But that's not really the kind of assessment that I'm talking about as a social function. And so my early theory, which is still very much alive and kicking, is that assessment has four main functions in society. And this is relevant because I think we're going to go on to talk about the future. And it's important to think about how we might be in the future providing for the functions that assessment has played since it was invented. And perhaps it's important to remember it was only invented really in the 19th century when we invented schools in the current form. So, I mean, just very quickly, these key functions are one might call a testing competence, so checking that somebody can do something, so like a driving test or something like that. Mm. Um, and a lot of assessments we have today uh, for professions or for becoming a doctor, say, or something like that are about competence. And then, of course, in the 19th century, when uh, there was an explosion of interest in assessing competence. There were too many competent people. So they came across this bright idea of comparing how competent you are in this notion of competition. And that's the fundamental purpose behind our public exams or tests of yes. huge number of kinds. And um, very high stakes, these exams often are. What's yes more recently come become obvious i think is the impact of that those tests and exams on the curriculum and in in the 19th century when public exams were first invented in britain it had a radical impact on the curriculum in the classroom and everybody knows if you're a school teacher that you have to teach the syllabus that's in the exam so it's that way round the assessment is driving the curriculum dog if you like Yes, um, to a greater or lesser extent. The tail well, wagging the dog is sometimes used that, is yes, that expression. That's yes, wagging is a better word than driving. <laughs> um, <clears throat> horse and cart is the driving one, I suppose. But uh, And then finally, and perhaps 
most importantly, assessment is a way that can be used to control the whole education system. And teachers in Britain today, and I think in other countries too, because Britain's been very clever at exporting what we do in education, there's all sorts of assessments that go on about how good a teacher you are, how good your school is, how good um, the whole system is. And now, of course, we have international league tables. And again, much of this, if you take um, school Ofsted inspections, for example, it's very high stakes. So there's a panoply mm. of different social functions that assessment plays. And it, in what, my very early book, I wrote about how it's hard to see, how to imagine a school without assessment. It's it's like the honeysuckle and the bindweed. They're just completely integral to each other. And it's um it it's one of those things that we sort of take for granted. That's why I thought thinking about it sociologically is not what we do. We tend to think of it as it's a thing you have to do well, mm. but obviously you have to do it. So the, so a question of why do we have exams or why do, do we exam too much? Well, no, it, we, um, there tends to be a question, for instance, we are currently living through a time when the, the Prime Minister has announced that he would rather re- redo A-levels and replace them with something else. And this something else will be presumably to exam, to broaden the, things, the number of things assessed and include an emphasis on mathematics, because that's, that's a, a choice society makes any particular time. Do you think that if you were to judge any society, a schools would be a good place to start if you want to make a... If you're visiting for another planet and you would have judged what a society is like, look at their schools. But you look at look at how they assess students or how they assess their young people. Do we get the kind of exams that we that reflect us and our concerns and our fears and our and our objectives at any particular time? Well, we should, shouldn't we? Uh, certainly, because in terms of what I've been saying just now, and we were talking about wagging the dog, what mm. gets tested is what gets taught. So we often talk about teaching the test. And personally, I think the answer to your question is a a difficult one, because there's a lot of talk about, say, 21st century skills that Mm. young people growing up now need. And these are not skills of learning by rote, or even writing essays in three hours or whatever, as we all know. They're skills of problem solving and being resilient and Creativity is a big one, and uh, all sorts of what you might call dispositions as well, almost personal qualities like perseverance or being being strategic. And um, those are not what we tend to teach, even though by common consent they're important because they're very, very, very difficult to assess, and we end up assessing what's easy to assess, even yes. in the classroom, but especially in uh, external assessments. The assessment, as we said, is the tail wagging the dog. So you tend to teach what you can assess, or you tend to assess what you. Well, the assessment works backwards. It shapes the the way you're taught, the way you're, the way the teachers teach, and what's mm-hmm. in the curriculum, and so on. Is it possible that also that if we try to think ahead, what will our what will our students need in the future, and we have a much more complex and holistic view of their skills and qualities, that itself simply reflects what we think our society will be like. So once, presumably, the Prime Minister says we, we want mathematics because he thinks we're falling behind in some technological way, and it's going to be a more technological future and so on. So we try to guess what the skills students will need in the future based upon what we think is somehow deficient right now. You know, if it, 
I mean, schools famously are always trying to solve some social problem um, and make make students more polite or teach them about problems, about how to be more kind to each other or something. So whatever we perceive is that what's wrong with society deficient now, we'll, we'll attempt to assess it, well, attempt to teach it and then assess it in some way or another. It's a, it's a sort of game of guesswork. Are we, are in, aren't we destined always to get it wrong? Hmm. Now that's, a, that's to say um, you're making an assumption that we've got it wrong, with, with which I would agree with you. But um, it's difficult to answer that question. I was just thinking about the prime minister. I mean, politicians, when they make educational policy decisions, they're almost invariably to do with ideology and very rarely to do mm-hmm. with expertise. And certainly um, a lot of teachers in this country, and I'm sure the same is true elsewhere, that um, are disregarded in terms of their expertise by politicians. And it's not that long ago that people like me were being called the blob by the powers yeah. that be for, um, you know, uh, these stupid left-wing intellectuals who don't know anything about anything. But, I mean, the assessment apparatus that has evolved over the decades and centuries is highly, highly sophisticated and very, very good at what it does within the limits of what is doable. I mean, the assessment tools that we have in principle are quite good of their kind. And that's the nub, I guess, of part of our discussion. So going back to the question you asked about the prime minister and what whether it's just guesswork, what we'll need in the future, I think a government could be a lot braver than um, governments that I'm familiar with in being really radical. I believe years ago that the government of Singapore got rid of about a third of the curriculum in favour of teaching creativity. And uh, they clearly believed in Singapore that creativity was going to be fundamentally important for the future. They're probably right. And Mm -hmm. we used to be quite good at that in this country in our schools, but we're much less good at it now, according to research I've done, because it's been squeezed out of teachers as they've had to follow very rigidly what's in in the syllabus and children get tested and tested and tested from an early age. It's interesting actually on that particular Mm -hmm. one that if you look at other education systems like for example Denmark, they don't have any formal exams or tests till the children are about 15 or didn't until Mm -hmm. recently and they seem to manage to produce perfectly well-educated adults and have quite a good society. So these are all social constructs that we have, and and I think people who are politicians, I won't personalise it too much, but I think politicians tend to grab at ideas that seem appealing, whether that's more paper and pencil tests or more maths in the curriculum Mm. or... I mean, that seems a reasonable idea, more maths in the curriculum, but it does beg the question, how do you help students learn maths better? And a lot of the work that I've done in recent years has been about how you can use assessment, a very different kind of assessment, to support student learning. And a lot of scholars have been very excited about so-called assessment for learning, Mm -hmm. and a lot of teachers... Too. And there has been a quiet revolution in many classrooms um, using assessment in a really positive way in that area. I get, I, I'm aware yeah. I'm digressing from the question you asked, but that is the way with academic.
You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Patricia Broadfoot, Professor of Education at Bristol University. And we are considering assessment. What are exams for? I think talking about I mean, assessment for learning and making the distinction between what I found was, as I, I can't remember when I first heard the expression assessment for learning, but it was some while, well, 10 years ago, I don't know, in mm. what point. And I thought, I thought two things, really. I thought, first, I've heard, it's, it seems to be telling me to do something I should always do, which is, you know, teaching is kind of a dialogue. It's a relationship. Mm. You, you feed back to students constantly and you, through, through marking. Teachers have been marking their books for years and years and years. And what he was asking me to do was think more about embedding that in the actual delivery so that I, be, I, was, I was finding out how, how it was being taught and how it was being received at the same time as teaching it. So it wasn't just simply one way exercise. Well, it was really useful. That, that kind of formative view of learning, like, I had no problem with. And I suppose when it comes to what schools are for and the bigger sort of somewhat, I don't know, is, is malign too big a word to talk about the way in which exams can be used to filter and to control and to legitimate certain inequalities in society. And that's what probably worries me about the exam system as it has been used in Britain over the last hundred years or so, this, this society which is, which is so class-oriented and so um, access to power comes through exams and certain privileges and certain schools and certain universities that you can get into, often hanging on a very fine choice. But I've ne- really no problem at all with formative assessment. I think it's, I think it's a, as you say, really quite a, a, a useful way of thinking. We might get on a little bit about how technology might help that or hmm. challenge that. It, it, but, I, I'd put it yeah. more strongly than you have, actually, John. Yeah. I think it's when uh, I was part of a, a group years ago um, from the British Educational Research Association called the Assessment Reform Group. And it, with our, we published a pamphlet at um, called um, Ten Principles of Assessment for Learning, literally a, a sheet of paper. And uh, there's also a pamphlet that goes with it. And this continues to be one of the most read publications there is in educational research because it strikes such a chord with teachers because it is so doable. And I'm sure teachers listening will be, many of them will be familiar with this and the principles it espouses. Because there's a hugely important dimension to that, which is recognizing that assessment is not some sort of objective thing that you do with people like taking their temperature. It actually has a huge emotional impact. And over the years, when I've been uh, talking or giving lectures to teaching students and so on, it doesn't take long for anybody listening to hark back to something that happened to them in their life when uh, they failed an exam or they didn't pass their driving test or they failed 11 plus or something like that. And the emotional scar is still with them. So this emotional uh, drive is there in every assessment interaction. You know, you're keen to succeed or you're not keen to succeed or it's not just a, a process that has no no uh, impact on you as a person and and that's why using assessment for learning and helping students to become independent and and clever 
powerful learners is is so is a revolutionary idea and it's a very doable idea so as a sociologist i wouldn't want um the educational bit of me not to be arguing for the pluses but the direction that your question was going in about uh, inequality and so on is the other side of the coin it's not the what i might call the assessment relationship of the classroom it's actually a social apparatus for performing social functions like deciding who goes to which university who gets which job and as i said earlier controlling what goes on in the institution itself in the school and making sure mm. um many of us are familiar with the lovely victorian notion where teachers were paid by the results of their students and we don't quite have that now but we're not a million miles away from no, that. No. Yeah, absolutely. And if if Ofsted, the latest the new head of Ofsted says we really need to move away from this this rather woolly holistic sort of view of schools looking at well, things like creativity and the broader curriculum. He said don't ignore that, but one way we need to judge a school is through their exam results. So there's been a sort of return to that with the new head of Ofsted and and well, whether we like it or not, I remember I taught in sixth forms, I taught A-levels, I taught GCSEs and results day. I don't know who was more nervous, me or the students. Mm. You know, it was, there was a lot on the line, uh, whether mm. that course would run next year, whether, uh, whether it would recruit in the future, whether, how I'd be judged. And if, if, if my results were good, I'd come home and say, oh, results were great this year. And of course, I've had that dream as, a, as, a, as an adult of being in an exam room and not knowing what I'm doing. It's a kind of like, like walking around in public without your trousers on. It's a sort of <laughs> p- persistent <laughs> mental scarring yeah. left over from yeah. school. You know. and, and indeed university, <laughs> I think. But the, uh, I think in this country, A-levels and their equivalent in other places are one of the most painful things that mm. students have to go through. Quite a lot of my career, early career, was spent on actually the pain experienced by students who had no possibility of achieving those qualifications mm. you know even the what we've now got gcse but we haven't always had gcse but even there you know many still many students uh, are not going to do very well in gcse mm. and it's a very big turn off for those who work out that they're not going to do very well I think if you looked at, um, I mean, if you were this proverbial Martian coming down to Britain or the world today, and you said, right, well, what do we want our students to learn for the future as far as we know, and we might not know, I'm not sure that sitting them in an exam room and making them scribble for two or three hours is really going to help us very much in terms of encouraging them to learn what we need them to learn. And it's important to recognise that the apparatus that we use of unseen examinations more and more is a technology that we use because the public trust it. And indeed, mm. the students themselves trust it. But I think you wanted to talk about the impact of the pandemic and how mm. that might have changed things. But I mean, most educationists for quite a long time, and probably including yourself, have been keen on more continuous assessment because you can make the assessments fit what you're trying to teach much better. 
But yes. of course, there are all sorts of problems in terms of defensibility or, crudely speaking, avoiding cheating in such um, such an approach to assessment. Yes. So we uh, fall back on the ones that we can police. Absolutely. And it's interesting you should use that word police and people feeling, students feeling that exams are somehow fair. It's it's like because it seems very fair, you know. It's a very strict, very traditional. Someone coming from the nineteenth century might walk into an exam room today and go, "I recognise what's going on here." Yeah. There's kids with pens. It's all silent. Someone looking very stern, walking up and down. So it feels a very like, "Well, it's me, my paper, my desk. What could be fairer than that? I'm being tested." And I think that that's part of the problem is we we think it's terrifically fair. Without again going back to the beginning of this conversation, fitting it into the purposes of that of the context and the social context of that exam room, and what it's actually doing, what what choices have been made to put that student in that exam that day, which may not may not be so fair. Uh, for a start, the choices about the kinds of things that are being tested, how they're tested, and the and the advantages certain students will have. I mean, you know, middle middle class students do well at exams. Yeah, kids I mean, with lots it. of books in their houses do well at exams. Yeah, so they are okay. they are the sorts of exams that certain sorts of kids do well at. Mm. And picking up on that is a phrase again I heard recently, last few years, the forgotten thirty percent. And I think it's a scandal in our education system that about thirty percent of students leave school with a, a series of grades or assessments or numbers these days for the GCSEs that tell them how little they know, that tell them how much they failed. You know they. Many, many students leave school waving a certificate that says, look, I'm very successful. But some will leave school saying, this, this, this certificate is a certificate of my failure. Mm. Well, carry that into life. That's, that, and, I, that, what, that, and probably that one thing worries me most about what I was doing as a teacher over the years. Really? It's lovely on results day for all the happy students, but it's the ones who didn't bother to turn up that day or pick their results up at home and just threw them in the bin. That most worry that, me. Um, uh, that's, that's a point about where we're going in the future because mm. that 30% who, you know, the forgotten 30% as you call them, we we need those people to be more successful in the education system in the future because there won't be the manual jobs that such um, people would have done in the past, more or less happily perhaps. And um, so we need to find a way for finding ways and routes through education that uh, offer something for everybody. And unfortunately, I mean, I, I mentioned at the assessment of competence earlier mm. on. Mm. And um, if you take sort of craftspeople, like if you're going to be a carpenter or a plumber or something like that, um, it's reasonably straightforward to assess your competence in that particular skill. And many young people take great pride in achieving those sorts of, quote, papers to attest to their competence. But the future is going to be, I mean, guess we'll still need plumbers and so on, but the future is going to be very different. And we do need people who will be able to negotiate a very mm. different world. And just mm. one last point, perhaps, on, on the exams per se and their fairness. It's... It's as much about utility as it is about f fairness. There's a huge literature about how unfair exams are, and I think every teacher knows uh, a whole ra raft of reasons why they're unfair. But the key to it all is that since 
early on really we had this notion of something called a meritocracy that the um, examination system would pick out those people who'd worked harder or were cleverer or you know whatever and and identify them for success which is what was fair but nowadays I think the drivers for what we do in in assessment in particular are actually to do with efficiency mm -hmm. um, but if the public for example or students themselves began to say well I don't really believe this results that we've got you know on a level result day they go and they say oh I don't, I don't think that's right you know I'm sure I got a so-and-so um, an A and not a B then the whole system would come crashing down and it doesn't come crashing down because people accept that it's not brilliant but it works mm. um, and as a way of social sorting if you like um, and it's even more acute now than it was when I was at school, that the social sorting that goes on. And as you mentioned um, very correctly earlier on, the social class dimension to it and the social cultural, cultural capital dimension to it is enormous. So I think mm -hmm. there's two things here. There is that inequality, but the inefficiency of continuing to use tools, in this case written exams, handwritten exams, for a world in which nobody's going to be doing that kind of thing and knowledge is not going to be at a premium, knowledge in your head, is just daft. Just Finance Foundation proudly sponsors Teachers Talk Radio for Talk Money Week. Join us from Saturday the 4th of November for a week of incredible guests and thought-provoking discussions on how teachers can talk about money in the classroom. Tune in, be inspired and empower the future generation. Teachers Talk Radio, sponsored by Just Finance Foundation, helping children manage money wisely. Visit our website for the schedule and details, justfinancefoundation.org.uk. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure 
helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Patricia Broadfoot, Professor of Education at Bristol University. And we are considering assessment. What are exams for? When you look at the the, the written essay as a form that uh, you know, every student of history and, I guess, geography and sociology and politics will, will know that they had to write this thing, you know, the balanced series of paragraphs, the arguments on one side, the arguments on the other, a thread of your argument all the way through. I think, well, when, when I left school, did I ever do that again? <laughs> and that, that feeling that an awful lot of the way you were assessed was to develop a skill to pass an exam. Exactly. And this is the cry of many a student <clears> that I never needed again in life, and when have I ever sat in the room for three solid hours and penned away at exam? Only in an exam, and never in life. I mean, there were deadlines and things, you know. Mm. So they do seem out of touch. We use in the trade, the term we use is validity, which is how far does the assessment actually reflect the skill that you're trying to uh, measure? And the answer is, in this case, not very well, except sort of basic nature. Well, it reflects a degree of resilience and nature and so on. So I guess that brings us on to talking about alternatives, doesn't it? Well, exa- absolutely, yes. And the possibility of, of, of the, the digital revolution and such like. Let's go with one, one alternative first before we get on to technological mm-hmm. things. You mentioned competence. Uh, I, yes, I want to know that a doctor knows how to you know, certain things. And I want to know that they're competent in that and a plumber and the, the same. But that's all I really need to know is they've achieved the competence of those very very identifiable skills. If students left school with a certificate that said this student has been to school and they are literate in the sense of the, in, 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 and they are numerate, <laughs> do we need more? And why, why assess things like drama and geography and history and so on? In a sense, if, if a student leaves school, my father left school at 14, you know, prior to the Second World War and... That's really what he had, really. He'd been to school. That's all that was known about him. Disaster for society if we reduce exams down to a a minimal level of been to school, attended, and were literate and numerate. Well, it's a very interesting (laughs) question. I think the answer is that society would very rapidly invent something else um, Mm -hmm. to go around the edges. Because employers in particular and universities would say, well, that's not enough information for us. We don't know if we want Susie or John. And um, uh, so, for example, in other parts of the world, they have tried out a lottery for selection for higher education. So that Mm. everybody who's got to a given level can be put into a ballot. And if you're lucky, you get placed. And if you're not lucky, you don't. But people don't like that system. It doesn't feel very meritorious. No. Um, And in other places, you know, you've got a system whereby you get 93.6% on your English and maths and I get 
92.7. Everybody is ranked on this single scale. And I think, I love the question you've asked, but I, it's almost impossible to imagine in this uh, sophisticated age we live in that um, the, the social functions of assessment could be satisfied with that. There has to be some way so people of would, um, sorting. Yeah, People would encounter some kind of assessment. They'd leave school and they'd be assessed for this particular profession or that particular profession. Which is it what happened anyway. happen in the yes. early Industrial Revolution. But also the accountability agenda. You know, how would the powers that be judge whether a teacher is competent or uh, whether the school is good enough. I mean, there are other ways of doing that, obviously, by inspection and so on. But I, I would use the, the notion of assessment as, is a kind of code that marks or a kind of code uh, or a language, if you like, which we use to embody all sorts of other things to do with quality. And if we didn't have that language, I think we'd be forced to invent it. If that makes any sense, yeah, yes, yes. Sort of assessment of some kind is with us, like like death and taxes. It's it's a sort of inevitable. I, I'm afraid I think that from a sociological point of view, and so the the implication of that is that um, we need to make that assessment as good as we can make it, as educationally desirable okay. as we can make it. You are listening to The Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Patricia Broadfoot, Professor of Education at Bristol University. And we are considering assessment. What are exams for? Well, let's go to the other possibility then. So instead of abolishing exams, how can we make them better? Given that scribbling away at a, at a paper, still still the main way of assessing students with their biros and so on, and not, not their ink pens as much as they used to. When I was at school, we still used my ink pen. But still basically scribbling away in this timed condition. How how can we do it better? And is there a de- and second part of my question, is there a danger that as we get more sophisticated at measuring more sophisticated things, it becomes rather deterministic. I mean, if I leave school saying, saying, well, I wasn't very good at maths at school. Well, I could say it was a, it, well, I was bad on the day. I was, I was never been very, my, my teachers were awful. And that's why I'm not, I'm not really bad at maths. But if I leave school with a very sophisticated assessment of my qualities as a human, you know, I'm, I'm creative and I'm, I'm empathetic and I'm, I work well in groups, but not always, take, I'm not very good at leadership. It's almost as if I've been, profiled in a way that I can't escape. Yes, I spent, it's a very, very important question. I spent a lot of time working on a project called Pupil Profiles a couple of decades ago. The idea being that you gave students a chance to shine on other things. If they weren't very good at maths, they might be good at sociability or something like that. But uh, at the time, teachers were very concerned in the way that you've described that actually the more holistic you make the assessment, the more difficult it is to get out from under. And yes. uh, uh, I, I do think there's real, real um, risks in that. I think the word you may use the word examinations just now. Maybe that word isn't helpful. I think the word assessment or or even testing is more 
um, is a narrower thing. That the exam has a great big E in front of it, really. Hmm. So if we if we went, go back to a, to that thing, I think we said earlier, I, I quite quite like the idea of, or rather, I felt was a useful new way of thinking about education, both new and old. It was assessment for learning. Well, if we, if we get rid of the sort of final exam, the the big day of testing, then if you're being you know, if you're in a process with a relationship where you're learning as you teach and teaching as you learn and so on, or being taught as you learn and so forth, do you need, you don't need a form of a, a final summative assessment in a way. It could be much more like, say, an American model yeah. where you say, well, in your first quarter you did this, in your second semester you did this, in the third semester you were moving through and uh, the teacher is keeping this record and so on. I remember doing this in an American high school and there was no exam at the end. Past that year, judged upon four semester, three semesters of of material that had been essays handed in, papers handed in, and grades given to the teacher. There was also things wrong with that because it depended very much upon whether the teacher was good at their job or not. Highly dependent on that. Hmm. But it was it was assessment, not just assessment for learning, but the learning was embedded. In, we seem to have come away from that. Coursework's been reduced. There are problems with coursework, advantages against students with from certain family backgrounds. Can we can we get away from the exam room and embed it in any sense in well, cleverer ways? Yes, the cleverer ways. I mean, I, I suppose a few years ago, my colleagues and I at Bristol University, we just had this simple question really, which is young people today are living in a highly technological society and they hardly ever use I don't know how often they use a pen, but they certainly use computers and tablets a great deal. And we said, why is it that we're still doing the assessment as we always have? And we looked into the possibilities of something called technology enhanced assessment, which we call T for short. And uh, this was quite quite a naive inquiry because we're um, and all the better for that, really. And so we looked at all some of the um, many experiments that have gone on around the world about how you can offer students the opportunity of being assessed online. And lots of assessments are going on online, as we know, um, already. And the theory behind that is terrific, you know, that um, you engage with your computer, your computer can adapt the test to what you seem to be successful at and what you're not successful at. It can be taken when it suits you. It's not so stressful. And perhaps most important of all, it can test things that paper and pencil can't test. Like, And I thought the, the analogy with a computer game was very powerful because, as you'll be aware, when you, have, um, when you play some of these computer games, they are really very challenging in terms of thinking and working out what to do in a given situation. So for me and my colleagues, this this was a very sort of 21st century project. And we asked ourselves, well, why isn't it happening? And uh, the result, well, I guess for there's some practical reasons why even in schools today that there isn't the technology available to everybody or it can't be um, policed well enough. But the main reason was that um, it doesn't come up with a simple language of saying you're better than me and I'm better than him. So that the, the outputs at the end goes back to what you were saying 
a bit earlier, really, that if you want a simple scale in which you can compare people, then having a, a very rich assessment doesn't fit that very well. Yes. It does sound almost like we're saying that we, we humans like a bit of unfairness. <laughs> that there's that winners, we like there to be winners. Is that there's some sort of sociological experiment once where they, they, they told people whether they could have all have a pay rise in the you can choose all to have a pay rise or some of you get more than others and they and, uh, and but you vote secretly on this and they all vote and they vote secretly. I'm not familiar with that one, but I'm not surprised. Well, they, they say things like, well, I think they should all have the same to their friends, but when they vote for it secretly, they say, no, actually, I, I think some of us should get more than others. <laughs> it's one of those not, we not very nice sociology studies that reveal that we're not as nice as we, well, that we quite like inequality. Uh, I don't think we like inequality, but we're prepared to tolerate it because we can't do anything about it, it was our feeling that even with this technology-enhanced assessment, the T, so-called, there are students who would be significantly disadvantaged by it, certainly when we were doing the study. And I think it would be true now as well that mm. some would have much greater access to equipment, some would mm. be more at ease with equipment, and doing things on computers appeals to some people more than others. There's even some gender bias built into that. So, mm. and that's when it, it brings us to a rather bigger question, I guess, which is the way in which society is likely to be changing even more in the future. I mean, we haven't seen anything yet by common consent. You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Patricia Broadfoot, Professor of Education at Bristol University. And we are considering assessment. What are exams for? I'm just in my last year of teaching. The exams are cancelled. Wow. <laughs> well, how, how, you know, the sky, the sky didn't fall. We tried something else. There was a, 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 use, a disastrous uh, algorithm, which was abandoned. And in some senses, I thought, well, we've just shown that we can do differently. And yet the tide just flowed back. It's as if that never happened. Mm -hmm. Do you think the, we missed an opportunity there to really say some of the things we learned forced to learn during COVID, during the shutdown. We didn't learn. It's as if it never happened. I, um, I think you've put it extremely well, uh, your summary there, because at the time um, I wrote in the postscript to my book, uh, I wrote a piece, short piece about COVID because I couldn't not write a piece as it was coming, as the book was coming out, was um, 2021. And uh, I thought, wow, this is really interesting that such a big change in society, uh, the way we are living, I mean, it was just um, so completely different from anything any of us have experienced before mm. in terms of how we were living. And so people like me who'd been writing about, with, I've written many a paper called Towards an Assessment Revolution or words like that, thinking, you know, it's all going to change as society changes, because that's the logic of it. And then I thought, wow, it could change overnight. And it did change overnight. And and I thought, 
we'd kind of broken through the glass ceiling uh, with an assessment revolution, as you've described it. Mm. And um, we didn't. It, And that's a very, very interesting question as to why we didn't stay with it. And the reason, I think, is because it was too difficult for the system to cope with out results which were not quite as dependable as ones that we produce when people are in locked examination halls. And um, that seems incredibly sad because we had the opportunity of releasing our education system from the stranglehold of an inappropriate assessment and we've decided that we can't risk that is just and it nothing nothing underlines more powerfully i think than the point that this is a social apparatus it's not an educational one it is something to do with how we sort people in society and yeah. it was because the sorting was not as uh, perceived to be as acceptable as it had been in the past that i think it was felt we had to give up on it. Uh, mm. I don't know what most teachers thought about it at the time. Perhaps you do, John. Well, I was I was kind of relieved uh, because every year as we head towards exams, I was a bit like the students. We were told to go home, and there wouldn't then a little while later there wouldn't be exams that summer, and uh, that that's never a bad idea. It's like a snow day. <laughs> you think, well, I quite like not, and the the slow mm. build towards the exam, that abandoning of the enjoyment of teaching, which is teaching the course, and yeah. now you come to the revision at the end and cramming it in their heads and yeah. practice papers and so on. I was going to lose all that. We taught the course just about, and now I was I was actually quite relieved that there wouldn't be exams. Um, and then it was going to be down to assessments. And I thought, I know these students. I've got a mark book full of essays, yeah. and I've, yeah. I, can, I know them all. I'll, it'll be more generous, probably, and it, it, it turned out to be. But it won't be inaccurate. That was my own perspective. And another thought I, that I had was every year I'd watch students get to universities that they wanted their first choices. And some would go to their second choices and a few wouldn't make it to university. But it would be it would be on a, on a knife edge of a grade. They didn't. They wanted an A, but they got a B. They go to the second choice. Well, during that year, an awful lot of students must have gone to universities that they might not have got into. I know some students who got to Oxford or Cambridge or whatever from my school, but maybe wouldn't have made it. Possibly. And yet, there's probably a study to be done on this. They seem to have been successful. Mm. I've not heard of mm. droves of students dropping out of courses. And yet the number of times I've had feedback from universities like Oxford and Cambridge of students, well, we couldn't, your students are wonderful student, but just not, you know, not for us. Or we're sorry they missed the grade by one grade. The grade didn't really matter in a way. They were just as good mm. based mm. on teachers' assessments. That's what I, I learned in a way. I think um, I would actually go further and say your assessments as a teacher were probably more comprehensive and more valid, to take, you know, taken across time and across different sorts of assignments and so on, than actually what that student produced in the course of a, of a sudden death. The other thing that goes with what you're saying, which is really interesting, is that when they get, say, to a university, it's anybody's guess what 
how that person's going to grow intellectually. We've had, since the idea of intelligence tests were invented in the United States, in, oh, in France and the United States in the 1930s and earlier, perhaps, we've got this notion that, you know, I'm clever, you're not kind of thing. Yes. And it's absolutely not true. People's uh, intellectual capacity and their grows and develops partly to do with how they feel, I mean, how they confidence and, and things like that. Motivation, absolutely overwhelming. Um, and I've seen it many times with students that I've taught at higher education, how they can grow in, amazingly if you give them the opportunity to grow. And that's perhaps one of the saddest things about our conversation is that we're wasting so much talent by this sorting and sifting obsession that we've got. I mean, it has to happen. We have to find some way of not everybody who wants to go to Oxford University can, can, can go, go yeah. there. But actually, <laughs> Oxford and Cambridge do put the effort into choosing potential students on a much wider platform of information than just examination grades, which mm. seems a lot fairer, because not everybody who's very, very high achieving academically would flourish in their particular environment. Uh, I guess you know that from your teaching experience. That oh, absolutely. Not yeah, so I, and that, uh, you know, I did wonder whether the fine decisions that are made are fine, are often very unfair and very arbitrary in a way. Yeah. And we, we could be a lot more relaxed. <laughs> how how we do that, I don't know. Well, I was, uh, um, during my time at Bristol University in management, I was uh, in responsible for something called widening participation, which is trying to get students from low-achieving schools and difficult backgrounds into a university like Bristol. And uh, many of those students do better than their more advantaged peers because they've had to become, over the time in school, very resilient learners and they've had to mm. you know manage themselves because they haven't had the teaching quality mm. in some cases that and so on and so on, and certainly don't have the peer support that you might get in another kind of school so yeah. there's so much that uh, affects how good a learner you are and how much you're going to achieve in the future and none of us knows that i certainly didn't think i'd grow up to be a professor but here i am <laughs> yes <laughs> That's true. When you look back at your own life and you think to yourself, "Well, goodness me, what was I? What was I at sixteen? It wasn't the me. Um, it's not the me I am now, or sixteen or seventeen. I've changed changed so much, and yet that period was so um, a lot hung on it. And uh, one of the things that depressed me most was when students would say things like, "Oh, that's that's ruined my life," and I'd say, "No, no, no, really, it hasn't. It hasn't done that. Please be reassured." It mm. hasn't. But I knew that these were very, but nonetheless, I couldn't shield them from the thought that we had assessed them in a way that would have a great impact. They carry the story of the university they didn't get into, or they carry the story of the job they didn't get, or worse still, of the fact that they were bad at maths. And when I sometimes meet students in the, in the street, and they'd say to me, oh, well, John, school wasn't really for me. I wasn't very good. And I thought, you've, you've internalized something that you now blame yourself for. 
And I think if schools were better, maybe schools weren't good. Mm. <laughs> maybe it's the schools are the problem, not you. Yeah. But there, yeah. there we are. Just like the school report, you know, so Johnny should concentrate more. Well, that's your fault, teacher, not Johnny's fault. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. and yet if you if you then for the rest of your life say, well, I'm, I can't concentrate very well, you know, and that's one of the things I'm not very good at. Mm. As we go going back, I'd like to end on this. We as we come to the end on the assessment for learning side. What the danger of increasingly sophisticated technology and its use in the classroom? The, well, go, go the, I'll go with the advantages first. The advantages, as you say, having a intelligent tool. That can respond to you as you're as you're learning. It's a wonderful idea. It's like having the teacher next to you. I couldn't. I found maths difficult at school until until a, a tutor sat with me and explained it to me. That ah, that's what I needed. I needed some right next to me over my shoulder. The, well, the, the technology has an opportunity to do that, but the downside is surveillance. Because we can gather data on students in a much more sophisticated way, that we will, and data leads to the serving of the data. <laughs> And I, I worry about that. You know, I, I worry about will we measure students too much as we are able to assess them for very good reasons to help them learn? We'll just gather too much information about them. Mm. So how do we balance surveillance against I the opportunities I, I, of I'm learning? I'm very pleased that you've used this word surveillance because I think it's a very real dimension to the whole of our conversation. Whether we like it or not, all of us now are living in a world of intense surveillance. Mm. I mean, we're on a Google platform, as I understand it, and uh, Mr. Google knows an awful lot about you and me, far more than we realise that he knows. So in a sense, what we're talking about in the school situation is is kind of peanuts by comparison to the power mm. of big data. And um, uh, one of the things that is, this is very open-ended sort of question, I think. At the moment, mm. I'm, still, I'm still taken by the notion that classrooms are going to be more and more dominated by computers and teachers are going to be hopefully more in that role of mentoring that you were describing, helping you to learn your maths, which would be really liberating for everybody. Mm. And I think having the opportunity to check your learning via a computer will be very motivating for a lot of young people because you get instant feedback and all the rest of it. So the scenario could be extremely positive. But against that, we, we're we entering a world that none of us quite understands or, or can get our heads around called AI. Mm. in which it's possible for students of all kinds to not even bother writing their own assignment, but to get a machine to write it for you. It's quite remarkable what the machines yes. can do. And um, uh, so, you know, how that's going to affect what goes on in schools, I can't mm. even begin to imagine. But I think one way in which, I mean, leaving aside the whole question of surveillance, I think we're all, well, to deal with surveillance, I think we're all living in a world in which we are going to be living with surveillance. And the only question mm. is whether it's going to get a lot worse. And that's why so much of the literature around AI 
is about the ethics of what we do or don't do and how we use it. Yeah. Um, but from the point of view of education and schools, I think it's a very difficult question. But one of the points I wanted to make about AI is because of the risk of enormous quantities of cheating in schoolwork and in assessments, it could well be that we end up with even more extreme versions of examinations in locked rooms with yeah. pencil and paste yeah. because it's the yeah. only way you can protect protect the results from cheating is the word yes well that that was almost what happened wasn't it when it when coursework when uh, you know was rolled back from mm. and they realized that well very sensible students are going to game the system of course they are they they're clever people and if they can get their uncle bob to write the exam write the coursework for them or they can get the or they can look stuff up online they will they naturally will do that so retreat back to what you know that that sense of fairness close the door you know start start from the clock the clock there's it's difficult to cheat in the exam room not well, impossible but difficult but against that we might come back to what you were suggesting earlier which is it's so impossible to do assessment in the way we've done it for the last 100 plus years that we won't do it at all and we'll just have the kind of certificate of attendance that you were talking about um, yes. and the rest of it people will have to find their own way through the system it's i, I don't have an answer to that it's far too no. early to have an answer but i i can I, see the scenarios yes and i, I remember when i when i when i encountering an article written by someone about well university students these days can simply have their essays written for them and they and professors find it difficult to tell whether it's real or not and they're developing some kind of software to tell you that whether it's ai generated and i thought well in a way i hope they don't i hope the ai blows up the whole system <laughs> because then you'll have to think about different ways of assessing people hmm. uh, and get a, and maybe it will in the end break it'll be the revolutionary thing that covid wasn't you know uh, disruptive technology that leads to something better but well but if if people are given a choice a choice between what they know and and going back to what they know uh, and choosing something new and original they tend to go back to what they know i fear you're right it'll be back to the exam room pen, pens and paper I, I remember i used to correspond with a friend of mine we'd play chess and i'd send him an I'd send him a chess move and he'd send me a chess move. We couldn't do it. As soon as chess became a thing online, you could just look it up on a game. And you, well, I, I couldn't tell whether he was actually playing or I was playing a machine. That ended, that, Very that, that interesting. That. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, we're on the cusp of some kind of profound change yes. in the way that we do school. So your opening question, what school is for? What's school for? And I countered with what's assessment for, uh, I think the answers to both those questions might be about to change. Just if you take the historical perspective, we haven't always had schools in the way we have them now, and we haven't always had assessment the way we have it now. So theoretically, it's possible for there to be a similarly radical change in the next 50 years as there was in the middle of the 19th century. Well, thank you. And that, it seems to me, is a good place to stop. <laughs> and I hope as uh, our listeners uh, will experience, as I have, a thought-provoking discussion which has led me with that thought. And I think we are living through times of change 
and it's going to be quite fun to see what happens hopefully well thank you john i've, I've also enjoyed our conversation and um, i'm sorry i haven't got all the answers but i don't think anybody does <laughs> and that brings to an end this episode of the friday morning break with john gibbs in which i continue to explore what schools are for my guest this week was professor patricia broadfoot of bristol university i hope you enjoyed our discussion you can find it now on teachers talk radio spotify and many other platforms thank you for listening You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.